0: This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. Sunday, July the 5th will be a unique day in the long history of English when two major sales come together as traditional physical auctions at the world-class Riverside Complex at Warwick Farm. At 10 a.m. sharp, Easter round two will get underway with 94 outstanding lots by world-class stallions like Brazen Bow, Deep Field, Dundeel, Exceed and Excel, Not a Single Doubt, Fastnet Rock, Frankel, I Am Invincible, Lonro, Schnitzel, Piero, and So You Think, with first season sires like American Pharaoh and Capitalist represented. English have decided to bring the famous scone sale to Riverside this year with a catalog of 156 lots. This auction will begin immediately after Easter round two concludes. All horses will be at Riverside from Thursday, July 2nd for your inspection. Who would have thought the famous Easter sale would have a winter session? Who would have dreamed the popular scone sale would come to town? Inglis have taken extraordinary steps to accommodate vendors and buyers in extraordinary times. It's really happening. Easter round two and the scone sale together under the same roof on Sunday, July 5th. My special guest is Darren Flindell. You had a very happy stint at the non-TAB Mossvale dog meetings, which raced 40 Saturdays a year, and it was a very long day. What was the format?
1: Basically, we'd have uh, seven races in the morning starting at 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm then we'd have a lunch break of an hour and a half and then return with a afternoon card of some 13 races it was a it was a delightful little country track that had the seven bookmakers that all formed a circle and generally it was always a very cold day there the broadcast boxes at ground level which was very convenient to do the last second dash from the betting ring to have that last minute bet mm. dash into the box um, without losing too much breath and announce that they're moving into the boxes the green lights on and here we go mm,
0: you were working uh, under high pressure in that era
1: yeah, <laughs> yes well I was I was quite slim and I, I'd moved very quickly as well so uh, that wasn't it wasn't a great um, an issue at the time but um, it was a very enjoyable place to, to work. And I think typically when you, you attend country meetings, it's, it's so relaxed and, and you build up great friendships. And a fellow called Graham Tonkin um, sort of emerged on the scene, and he was interested in race calling. And at that stage, I think I was 20 or 21, and he would have been late 40s. And anyhow, I took Graham on as my apprentice. Which worked out quite well in the sense that he was very keen. Any time I couldn't work there, and that was often other things would come up, mm. and uh, Graham would always take over. So it was it was great having that safety net that the job was always there when I when I wanted it. Mm. But if I couldn't make it, um, it'd be in capable hands by somebody that would really appreciate the work.
0: During that Mossville era, you got some casual work co-hosting the 2KY Saturday Night Service. With the late Steve Cairns, wonderful bloke and a wonderful operator. Now, you both fancied a cigarette or 20.
1: <laughs> yes, a few of us did. Um, the The Saturday night ritual would normally start about six o'clock. Mm. It would take some one hour and 20 minutes to drive from Mossfell to, to Wentworth Street, Parramatta. Um, we didn't waste time generally um steve would just look at me and say are you ready i say yes and we'd order that pizza and then we'd do our best to to ravage a a packet of winfield blue each and see who could knock it off in the quickest time before (laughs) the last race at 11 o'clock yeah
0: so there'd be a a a dreadful stench in the studio at 2ky (laughs)
1: yes well uh yeah, Steve liked to puff, and there was um there was plenty of others in the building because we took over from Les Mead, and he didn't go too bad either in the day shift.
0: He was a group one performer.
1: Uh, multiple group one performer, yes,. yes.
0: <laughs> By the way, for the younger generation, every time I refer to two KY, uh, I'm talking about the present day Sky racing radio. Now, KY management recognised your talents and your versatility. And that led you to race-calling opportunities eventually at the Nowra Dogs, the Bathurst Trots and the Lithgow Trots. And around the same time, you became a full-time journalist and form card keeper at the good old Greyhound Recorder, which was born in 1938. Now, you'd work at the Recorder by day and quite often you'd fulfil race-calling duties at night somewhere.
1: Basically... uh at that age, I, I had very little social life. It, it basically was all work, and I absolutely loved every moment of it. Working at the Greyhound Recorder, the building we worked in at Summer Hill, it was definitely built in 1938. <laughs> I, I've never seen a more decrepit place yeah. to work in. And uh, speaking of smoking, um, this is what started the, the smoking at the time. Every single person, it was like a warehouse, smoked in there you could hardly breathe mm. and I ended up taking it up myself just so I could fit in otherwise mm. it was unbearable yep <laughs> isn't it it's funny the life we live in now people people would find it very hard to believe that um well you could smoke in a lift uh, back in that era mm. and uh, that was common in the workplace
0: at the movies restaurants anywhere mmm Greyhound recorder, Darren, I believe, was purchased last year by an organisation called punters.com.au and continues to service the dog punters to this day.
1: Well, well, that's good to hear. Um, I I haven't actually purchased a greyhound recorder in in some time, but, um, yeah, I think punters.com are are providing a very good service to the industry, so it's pleasing to hear that.
0: I think it was around 1996 when Sky got you on board at a time when they were servicing pubs and clubs only. Your first assignment was called Late Mail, which was a tipping program. Tipping all three codes?
1: Yes, and I must thank the the great, late Nick Rogan uh, for his assistance there. He was an integral part of getting me into that position. Uh, Sky were looking for, for somebody to to take over a, a new role, and we went in late one night uh, that Nick organised with Brad Adam at the time, who was one of the directors, and we, we did a dummy run. Then mm. I was back the next day to do it for real. John Maris was in charge at that stage, mm. and John came up to me and said, after we did it, hmm, can you do a Windsor knot? I said, what do you mean? He said, (laughs) with the tie. I said, oh. He goes, I'll show you. If you can do the Windsor knot on your own, you can start tomorrow.
0: (laughs) He was from the era of Windsor knots, John Marris.
1: And uh, I've always been very particular the way I do my ties and Mm. always um, thanks to John for that.
0: Mm. I'm very proud to announce, Darren, that I still use a Windsor knot. I'm from the same era.
1: Mm, Good to hear.
0: (laughs) Then came the precursor to In The Gig, as we know it today. You hosted a harness racing show called Setting The Pace and your colleagues on that panel were Sam Nattai, who spent five years as CEO of Harness Racing New South Wales before moving to England, and a bookmaker called Dean Newell was a regular.
1: That was very enjoyable doing that. It was a, a primetime slot, as I recall. I think it was 5.30 on Friday afternoons, basically previewing Harold Park and Redcliffe coming up uh, with a feature story. And it was, I think, back in that era, it was very special for the Trots to to have that type of coverage in primetime when the pubs and clubs were, were, were jam-packed. So it was very enjoyable, and it was the, the, the segue to... What is now in the gig, um, hmm. for the, um, the the home channel coverage that they have now, but that was that was very enjoyable at that time, and I think that was an era too when Sky's coverage and build up of Harold Park trots and Friday night was was really building up at that stage. Ironically enough, under the under the care of Peter Volandis.
0: Later, you moved on to the catching pen with that renowned greyhound aficionado Mark Duclos, and I know you enjoyed that.
1: I love doing that show. Yes, it was great fun. We would record it, either do it live on Sundays or recordings were better. And um, yeah, I, I feel very fortunate that I spent a lot of time in the greyhound industry, the harness industry, and uh, and now the thoroughbred. That I, I feel I'm blessed that I've got a good overview of the three codes of racing, and I've had such a great time mm. being involved in all three codes.
0: In 1999, you were chatting one day with the late Wayne Wilson in Brisbane who told you that the Hong Kong Jockey Club was looking to appoint a 2IC to the chief caller, David Raphael. Now, it was Wayne who suggested you should at least tender for the job because you were the right age and you were in the right circumstances.
1: It was... It was an interesting period of time there because I was I was doing mostly presenting work at Sky, and deep down it was upsetting me that the, the calling opportunities were were few and far between, and I think at that stage Hilton Donaldson uh, was number two behind yourself, and Hilton was very was very helpful with me. Quite often I'd go to the provincial meetings with Hilton and call a race or two or fill in for him when he was on holiday. So. I think that was the opportunity that Wayne Wilson got to hear what I was capable of uh, calling the gallops. And when that opportunity came up in Hong Kong, there was a, a, lot, of, a lot of thinking to do. Mm. Now, Jeff Want was in charge of Sky at that stage, mm. and I went to him with my predicament and said, I've, I've been given this offer and I'm really not sure what to do. He said, mate, you've got to go. Mm. He said, this is a marvellous opportunity. You go. Go for two years, and if it doesn't work out, your job will always be here for you. And no, I thought that's I all I. Yeah. That's all I needed to hear. Mm.
0: You told me and, once that arriving in Hong Kong for the first time was quite a lonely experience. You had the sum total of three hundred dollars in your kick, mm-hmm. and you knew nobody.
1: I remember when I first arrived in the South Pacific Hotel in Causeway Bay and uh, and walking out for a little look around and that feeling of the neon lights everywhere. Mm. And after about 10 minutes, I thought, have I already walked down this street or not? Or am I going around in circles? <laughs> <laughs> I got horribly confused. I went into a bar with a $1,000 Hong Kong note, which is basically um, like 120 Australian dollars. Anyhow, I put the note down I ordered my beer, and the change came back, and it was like four hundred and eighty or four hundred and twenty dollars. Mm. And I thought, "What the hell has gone on here? Have I just paid five hundred and twenty for a beer?" <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. I've realised they've given me change for a five hundred dollar note, mm. not the thousand. So I protested <laughs> yeah. because this is all I've got. I, Two beers and I'm out of play. Mm. Um, just that that feeling in the in the first night or two in Hong Kong. I thought, what have I done? But the moment I met um, our manager there, a lovely fellow called Nuno, and we're, we're friends for life. And Mark Richards, who is also joining the commentary team at precisely the same time. He was a, a former jumps rider, mm. and Nuno picked Mark and I up from the hotel and said, now. We'd like to have a meeting. Uh, would you boys prefer a, a cup of coffee or should we go and have a beer? And Mark and I, in tandem, said, I prefer a beer. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and immediately I thought, we're going to have a, a, a very good telecast team going there in Hong Kong. Mm. Apart
0: from calling races there, you had regular television commitments. Uh, And racing got a very liberal coverage and obviously still does on several television outlets in Hong Kong.
1: Well, actually, bringing up the name of of Mark Richards, yes, we were doing uh, preview shows. So the equivalent of what we have, uh, say, uh, form line now, we were doing this in Hong Kong. It would be a one-hour show. We'd be showing multiple replays. It would be very in-depth analysis and Mark being from England and myself from here, we we cross swords quite often on the form. And it, it's it may have started by accident, but it was building up quite a following that there would be a bit of tension on the set or some arguments that we weren't just agreeing with each other. In fact, it became rather confrontational on occasions. Mm. And, and sometimes it was fabricated just for entertainment because on the free-to-air TV, a lot of people was no pay television in those early stages so people would rely on this for a bit of entertainment and it was it was very good fun back in that era
0: just break for another commitment uh, on the podcast darren back with you after this you only need to talk to country-based owners and trainers to realize that the tab highway concept Has been a runaway winner for Racing New South Wales. The scheme met with some opposition when introduced in 2015, but it wasn't long before the Tab Highways captured the imagination of regional horsemen. Early days, trainers like Matt Dunn, Matt Dale, Danny Williams, and Terry Robinson dominated the weekly highways, but now there seems to be a different winning trainer every week. For bush owners, The prize money has been a revelation, while punters love the highways as a betting medium. From a media viewpoint, the highways seem to throw up a good story most weeks. The tab highways are a key component of the new face of New South Wales racing. Not everyone realises that the Jockey Club controls every facet of the racing industry in Hong Kong. They are really the supreme power. Now, you tell me the horse population over there very rarely exceeds 1,100 horses.
1: In that era, that was the case, um, the numbers have expanded a little bit as they purchased significant land in China at a property called Chung Chungfa, mm. and they built their own racetrack there and training facilities. So this will be ever-expanding, but in the era I was there, that would basically be the the cap, 1,100 horses at, at one time, mm. which it might sound like a big number, but in essence, you would pretty much know every one of those 1,100 horses as well. Unlike the system here, where it's forever changing, every time you see a nice two-year-old, the next minute it's off and gone, it's been sold to Hong Kong or or mm. to Singapore, you would sort of get very familiar with the horses there in Hong Kong because... They weren't going anywhere. Mm.
0: It's a fact, isn't it, that individual owners are not permitted to have more than three horses at any one time.
1: Yes, <clears throat> that's generally the uh, the rule there. So it makes identifying these horses with the unique owner's silks, mm. you would often, the moment you saw a horse with those silks, you'd know exactly who it is without having to give too much thought to it, which is which is quite good for a race caller.
0: Your big break came along in 2006 when the very talented David Raphael elected to quit his race calling post to become a bloodstock agent, and he's more than excelled in that field. Now, suddenly, you were elevated to the coveted role of number one caller from the Hong Kong Jockey Club a long, long way from the Mossvale
1: dogs. (laughs) Yes, and sometimes I would think um, in certain moments when the pressure was building up or certain things were going on, I'd reflect back in my mind and think, oh, in some ways, I I wouldn't mind just being back and being that teenager again at the Mossvale Greyhounds with no stress and no worries. Mm. Um, It was all so easy uh, there, but... Um, Hong Kong was great fun, massive crowds, um, working in broadcast boxes there with open windows so you could feel the energy of the crowd. And if you missed something, the mm. crowd would let you know. Mm. When the gates open, if a horse has stumbled out or lost the rider, my goodness, the, the noise, you'd think, what has happened? What have I missed? They'd and, be shouting
0: uh, at the box, you mean.
1: Um, or just the, just the crowd noise uh, in general, yeah. like the the ooh or the ah. If if, yeah. um, if there was an incident out of the out of the starting gates,
0: which which if, you may have missed,
1: yes, right. and uh, I think yeah, many race callers at different tracks, you you might actually miss something out of the gates. In Hong Kong, whilst you may may not have seen it, you quickly become aware that it's happened because um, the crowds tipped you off.
0: You had eight years as number one caller at Sha Tin and Happy Valley and you call some incredible horses trained by horsemen from all over the world and ridden by great jockeys from all over the world. And there were some pretty good local riders too. But there are two horses who've been at the top of your list uh, from, from that era and I'm sure that won't have
1: changed. There was a... The, the generation of uh, of three and then four year olds designs on Rome and Able Friend mm. in all the lead up races to the Derby. These two just had the most magnificent tussles all of the way, and uh, and they fought out the Derby. But then they were able to go on in the season and the season after to follow, and both be very dominant in their in their group races, and Able Friend. He he just looked the part. He was a beautiful looking racehorse. when his very first so started at Wyong, mm. of of all places. But he was a horse that grew very special to me. And I recall he won on the Derby day on the fifteenth of March. And in the call when he's won his Group One race, I said, "I'm going to miss you, buddy." Mm. And uh, a few of his fans still remind me today of that call. and we refer to to able friend, I'm going to miss you, buddy. Mm,
0: yeah, it's pretty very touching special stuff, horse. My word, mm. you've worked in an era of wonderful jockeys in Hong Kong, surely none have exceeded the deeds of Australia's Zach Purton.
1: I think Zach is a is an absolute champion. From what. From when he arrived in Hong Kong to what he's achieved now has been an incredible success story and there's been no fluke about it. He's a very determined man. He's had his battles with weight, um, like like most of the good jockeys do. Um, mentally, he is he's one of the sharpest you'll ever see and he brought an end to the domination, the 14-year reign of terror of Douglas White Zach Purton single-handedly brought him undone mm. and then started a new era uh, when Joe Moreira arrived on the scene. Mm. And uh, it, it's been interesting watching the twists and turns of the riders. The very first year I arrived, believe it or not, Robbie Frad, who's still booting home winners up there in Brisbane, mm. was the leading rider before Douglas White started his 14 years mm. of, uh, of consecutive premierships.
0: Robbie Fradd, still going strong, rode the Stradbroke winner recently.
1: Mm, yes. Uh, yes, tie zone.
0: Mm. It seems the Hong Kong years were of enormous benefit to Darren Flindell's development as a race caller. Twice a week, two tracks, fiercely competitive racing, which the caller can't help but become involved with. Was Hong Kong your making?
1: Oh, uh, definitely. Yes, it was. Uh, and in many respects, the best years of my life as well, uh, not just professionally, but I think um, socially, um, the, the nightlife in Hong Kong is so enjoyable and its location, it is just so strategically positioned where you can visit all parts of the world without it being a, a big drama or a long flight. Mm. And... I got the opportunity to visit most parts of Asia. There's not many Asian countries that I haven't been to. Mm. And having that life experience as well just would not have been possible had I not taken that role in Hong Kong.
0: Mm. I heard somebody say recently, Hong Kong is halfway to everywhere.
1: That's the best way to describe it. (laughs) In contrast, now when you go on a holiday, and I I don't travel particularly well, after four hours or so i will get very restless mm. and I'm looking at the map on the in flight screen and think, Oh my goodness, we haven't even left Australia yet. We're just we're just approaching Darwin. <laughs> That's right.
0: It's a big island.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. Whereas you get on a flight from Hong Kong, you could be anywhere in Asia and mm. no flight would be longer than four hours. Yeah.
0: You know, you sometimes make reference to having backed a horse which intrigues me because not all callers can handle both things, the punt and the call. I could never do it, and I can Mm. name several other callers who abstained when they were calling races. But then there were others like the late Bill Collins who reckoned he was better when he'd had a punt. You're obviously not distracted by it.
1: To be honest, John, I feel like, well, I like to think that I am better by having a punt because it means I'm very focused and I, I'm aware of what's going on. Mm. Um, it's not just studying names uh, for a race and spitting them out, because I've I've sort of done the form on the meeting, and it gives you a, a sort of a feeling of who's in which race and who who the chances are. And quite often, it also means that. I'm looking, I'm looking for the favourite on the home term, whether it's going well or it's not going well, mm. or I, I'm just sort of aware that I need to be looking for such and such because I'm aware of its price and what its capabilities are. So it, it's, it's, it's an interesting um, topic because it, it can be quite divided. Race, certain race callers do not want to have bets in races that they're calling mm. and others thrive in it and uh, I guess I'm in that second category.
0: Mm. It's probably 50-50, really, in my experience over a lot mm. of years.
1: I, I wouldn't say I've ever been a big gambler, mm. and uh, that $200 wager I had on bounding away, typically my bets wouldn't be any higher than that on a single bet these days. I might spend 200 on a quaddy or a, or a mm. big six, but I don't typically have $200 win bets either.
0: Even a man like the late, great Ken Howard uh, wasn't a regular punter, he wasn't an habitual punter when he was calling races. Uh, he, In fact, in, in, in his later years, he would support only horses that he owned or part-owned himself, and I can remember him having a very big wager. He had $500 on a little horse called Liddell at a Canterbury Saturday meeting. It's got to be 40 years ago, so $500 was a pretty good punt. And Liddell looked beaten 17 times in the straight and finished up getting there by a nose. He beat a horse called Sound Queen. Neil Campton rode Liddell and Hilton Cope (coughs) rode Sound Queen. That's how long ago it was.
1: Let's bring back Saturdays at Canterbury Park.
0: (laughs) You're talking like an old Clempton Park
1: boy. Yes, I love the place.
0: Well, Darren, you're a youthful 51. You've got a lot of experience under the belt now. And you're exactly where you dreamed you'd be in the days when you enrolled at Max Rowley's radio school. The best years are yet to come, Mr. Flindell. It's been a delight having you on the podcast. Thanks for your time.
1: Well, thanks very much for having me, John. And, well, you've you've made me feel very warm inside when you say the best years are yet to come.
0: And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by
1: Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.